This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. On behalf of Laurie and myself, I want to say how thankful we are to be here. It's exciting to be able to come up and to visit you and to be a part of this uh, solemn and serious occasion. We should never take for granted our time together like this. It's a blessing from God and we should relish this and, and draw everything that we can from it to enrich us and to, to nourish ourselves spiritually in, in the grace of God and in the fellowship of one another. Uh, Laurie and I, we don't get out very much at different places on Sunday morning, and so whenever we do, it's a, it's a real pleasure, and I want you to know how much of an encouragement it is to us to be here and to be able to engage in the singing and uh, the prayers and our study this morning and our remembrance of our Lord's death. And pray that what we have to study this morning will be interesting to you and uh, invite you to uh, uh, engage your mind and engage your heart as we look into God's Word to better understand His will for us and to better understand how we are to serve Him and how we're to serve one another. This morning, for a little while, I want us to consider the question, Christianity, religion, or relationship? Uh, if you were to go on the internet and Google this sermon title, you would find thousands and thousands of sermons <laughs> with this title, Christianity, Religion, or Relationship. And this morning, we want to consider that question and uh, consider it from a biblical perspective. Uh, it, it's my observation that a lot of times our understanding of Christianity, whether it's a religion or a relationship, is not necessarily born out of a study of the Bible, but more of an emotional reaction to maybe things that we've experienced in our life. Unfortunately, there are many people that have been hurt by religion. And because people have been hurt by religion, they have a, an adverse uh, view of religion and in fact go to the extent to even say that Christianity is not about religion, or rela it's about relationship. In fact, the majority of the lessons that you hear concerning this subject are going to emphasize relationship over religion. And what we want to do this morning is just look and see, okay, what does the Bible teach about this? Is it a one or the other? Is this the, is this the dichotomy we have to choose one or the other? Or does the Bible teach maybe a third alternative? That we don't have to choose religion, we don't have to choose relationship, but maybe the Bible teaches something completely different that gives a harmony between these things and our understanding about how we are to serve God and to serve one another. So we're going to look at this morning what religion really is and what the Bible teaches about religion. We're going to look and see what the Bible says about relationship and, and try to come to an understanding of that and then try to put together a, a, a cogent biblical answer to this question so that our answer to this question, our response to this question is not born out of some hurt that we experience from religious people in the past but by a sound biblical understanding of what the Bible has to say about it. The first thing we want to look at is what is religion? And we're going to look at some Greek definitions here. And we're not going to get too technical, but we're just going to try to bring out some concepts to help us to understand what the Bible means whenever it says religion. This is the Greek word that it comes from, and it appears five times in the New Testament. <laughs> now, whenever we think of religion, we might think, well, it would appear a lot more than that in the Bible, when in fact it only appears five different times. It literally means a religious observance, the outward service of religion, the external form. We're just going to look at several definitions that, that, that uh, uh, word scholars give us. 
a ceremonial observance or a religious worship, especially external, that which consists in ceremonies. And so whenever we look at these definitions, these are the words that stand out. It's something that's outward. It's something that is external. It's something that involves ceremony. And it is something that involves religious or, or uh, traditional or consistent observances. Now whenever we look at this definition, it seems to go against the grain of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is a service from the heart. Christianity comes from the inside. And to put an emphasis on something that is outward seems to go against what Christianity and what the Bible teaches about our service to God. But whenever we look at our inward nature as it pertains to Christian living, how is our inward nature manifested to the world? Through that that is outward. Through that which is external. And so whenever we see these things, don't think that it runs counter to what Christianity is all about, but this is just an aspect of what Christianity is about. It has an outward and external manifestation. And that outward external manifestation sometimes is in you know, the observances of certain ceremonies. Whenever you look at God's people in the Old Testament, He commanded them to observe certain ceremonies. And we have certain ceremonies. Now I know, you know sometimes we don't like to refer to what we do as a ceremony because of the way we think of ceremonies. But there are outward observances and ceremonies that we do in the New Testament. And so whenever we think of religion, that's what the word religion means. These are the five different times that the word is used in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul used it when he was talking to Agrippa and he refers to himself according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So there he speaks about the Jewish religion that he lived in before he became a Christian. Colossians 2.18 where Paul is speaking probably about the Gnostics and their religious observances. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. That word worship there comes from the same Greek word that is religion. So he says basically the religion of angels. In James 1:26, if any among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And then finally in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the, father, uh, the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What I want us to do is to, per, is to focus on James 1, 26 and 27 for just a moment. Because here the word religion is just used to identify as a point of identification. And here, again, a point of identification. But here it's talking about the actions and the effects of religion. And that's what we want to understand. Notice what James says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is useless. And so we see here that this religion is characterized as being useless. It's empty. It's profitless. Well, why is that man's religion empty and profitless? Well, because he doesn't bridle his tongue. So in other words, his religion is not having the effect in his life that that religion is intended to have. We can come here this morning and we can do everything by the book and do everything exactly the way God wants us to do it. But if we walk out of this building and we can't keep our mouths shut, <laughs> then our religion is vain. Our religion is vain. 
So here, James denotes that man's religion as being useless. In other words, the outward observances that this man participates in, the external ceremonies that he involves himself in, doesn't produce the effect of godly living. And that tells us something about New Testament biblical religion. It is to produce an effect in our life in the way that we live, holy, godly, the effectiveness of our religion here today is not going to be determined so much by what we do here, but what we do whenever we walk out the door. Can I keep my mouth shut? <laughs> Can I keep myself clean and unspotted from the world? That's going to determine what type of service we have here today. But then he contrasts that with pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Here the word pure means to be free from corrupt desire or genuine. So genuine religion. It's not a religion that we come here to try to show ourselves holy. It's not a religion where we come here to practice to try to affirm to ourselves just how really good we are. But we come with pure and genuine motives and intent to participate in this to become the type of people that God wants us to be. And this is pure religion and it is undefiled. The word undefiled means to be unsoiled, free from that by which anything is defiled. Its force or vigor are impaired. Good works and holy living. So whenever James talks about religion here, he doesn't say, he doesn't make it a dichotomy, okay? It's either religion or relationship. It's vain religion versus pure religion. And so the idea that we've got to choose religion or relationship, whenever James talks about religion, he makes it about vain religion or pure and undefiled religion. <laughs> you know, whenever we look at pure and undefiled religion, Again, it's judged by what? Its effect. This man's religion is vain. Why? Because its effect was not good. He couldn't keep his tongue bridled. Pure and undefiled religion is gauged by what? Its effect. Okay, we're going to go out and we're going to visit the fatherless, we're going to visit the widows, and we're going to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. If what we do today, if in every religious ceremony you engage yourself in, if it produces this effect then it's pure and undefiled. And so whenever we think of religion, don't think of religion as bad. Think of bad religion as bad. But think of good religion as good. Now sometimes when we read this verse, some people have the idea, and I've even entertained the thought myself, well see, this is what pure religion is. It's just going out and doing good. I don't have to go to church. I can just go out and do good, and that's pure religion. I think that's a misunderstanding of what James is talking about here. That whenever James makes this expression here, he's saying that this isn't what religion is. This is the effect of religion. Consider the context. Just like he said up here. This man's religion is vain because of the effect that it produced or it didn't produce. And he's using the same logical analogy here or comparison that it's religion and its effect. Just to give you some examples, uh, these are some noted commentators that talk about this text. Uh, A.W. Robertson, he's a 
uh, in his, his writing on the New Testament word studies, says this is not a definition of religion or religious worship, but only a pertinent illustration of the right spirit or religion which leads to such acts. And Barnes in his commentary says, the apostle does not say that this is the whole of religion or that there is nothing else essential to it, but his general design clearly is to show that all religion will lead to a holy life. And he mentions this as a specimen or an instance of what it will lead us to do. So we don't want to fall in the trap of thinking that, well, I don't have to go to church. I'm just going to practice my religion by going out and doing good. Going out and doing good is a good thing. But that's not the religion that James is talking about here. That's not the worship that James is talking about here. He's very clear in his, in his explanation. Bad religion doesn't produce results. Good religion produces results. And so whenever we think of religion, we need to think of it in that regard the way that James teaches us. Now a lot of times people will turn, well, what about the Pharisees? And the Pharisees are often held as an example of why religion is bad. In a lot of these sermons that you get about religion or relationship, in order to disparage religion, we automatically consider the Pharisees. And because of the Pharisees, we paint with a broad brush, well, religion is bad, because look at the Pharisees. But the Bible doesn't teach us that the religion is bad because of the Pharisees. Look at Jesus as He taught concerning the Pharisees. As He was teaching the multitude, He says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is religion. Doesn't say that, does He? He says, Beware of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is the bad practice of religion. Hypocrisy is just putting a, 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 an emphasis on the external without any regard for the effect that the religion is to have in life. So in other words, if we come here and we do what we do, and then we go out and we, it has no effect on us, that's hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus says in reference to the Pharisees. And so a lot of times Pharisees are held up as a, 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 a reason to disavow religion. No, the Pharisees are held up as a reason to disavow the practice of bad religion. Because the leaven is not religion, the leaven is hypocrisy. And the word hypocrisy just means acting under a feigned part, a pretense. And it's the opposite of pure and undefiled. What's pure and undefiled? Pure and undefiled is genuine. Not soiled by any pretense. Hypocrisy is you're going to act the part and you do what you do as a pretense. And whenever you think of the Pharisees, that's what they did. You know, Jesus even told them, told the disciples, whatever the Pharisees tell you to do, do it. But then what does he say? But don't do as they do. For they say and do not. And so it's the hypocritical practice of religion. Matthew 23, whenever Jesus was, again, uh, castigating the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He says, you pay tithe of men, anus, and cumin, and you will omit the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And a lot of times we'll stop there and say, see, Jesus wants us to focus on judgment, mercy, and faith, and not all of this outward religious stuff like tithing and all of those things. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, these ought you to have done, judgment, mercy, and faith, and not to have left the other undone. 
So he's not saying, do this and just let that go. No, he's saying, you do that, but you also do this. And so the outward external acts of religion are not condemned by Jesus. They're not condemned in the Bible, but a certain type of religion is condemned. And so is religion to be rejected? No. Vain, hypocritical religion is to be rejected. And so whenever we're presented with this dichotomy, you've got to choose religion or relationship, you reject that choice. Because there's another third choice that's out there. But what Satan wants us to do, and Satan does this a lot, <laughs> he gives us what are called false dichotomies. He makes us choose between two things, one to the exclusion of the other, when in fact, whenever you look at the Bible, a balance of both is really what God wants in our life. And that's the way it is with religion and relationship. Pure and undefiled religion is to be embraced and practiced to produce the good works and holy living of a faithful disciple. So we want to come here this morning and we want to do everything according to the will of God. But understand the effectiveness, the type of religion that we practice this morning is determined after we leave this building and we go live our life. Am I going to keep my mouth quiet? Am I going to not be moved by passion to speak my mind, but I'm going to be measured in my opinions and in my actions towards other people? Am I going to keep myself unspotted from the world? If that's the product, then your religion this morning is pure and undefiled. But otherwise, it is vain. Now let's look at relationship for just a moment. <clears throat> the popularity of the term seems to have grown out of a counter to religion. And again, if you, you, know, you read any religious literature over the past several years, you know that in the religious culture, there, there, there is a, a trend away from religion to relationship. Well, what does the Bible say about relationship? Well, first of all, in characterizing this. In other words, Christianity is not about practicing organized corporate religion. So I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to be a part of a group of people because relig my, my relationship with God is a personal relationship with God. It's a relationship that I have with Him. And I don't really need anybody else. You know, that's good that that's out there and I, and I like people that believe and I'll go to church every once in a while. But what's really important is God and me. God and me. And I want to say, in my observation, that this idea of, of a personal relationship with God has done a lot of damage to the church. And you might think, well, how can having a personal relationship with God do damage to the church? I'm talking about this concept and this idea. It leads to some misunderstandings that I think are harmful to the Lord's body. Now this idea of personal relationship, many will contend earnestly for the term. And you may think this morning, well, this is just semantics. You know, you choose the word, you, you choose this word, I choose that word. Well, no, it's not just semantics. Because here's the thing, if we don't use biblical terms and allow the Bible to define those terms, when we incorporate terms into our, our, our spiritual vernacular, that aren't biblical and rooted in biblical ideas and definitions, what we tend to do is we tend to put our own definitions to those terms. 
And so think of personal relationship. What do you, whenever I say, whenever I say close personal relationship, what do you think of? Well, I think of my relationship with my spouse. That's a close personal relationship, right? A close personal relationship is a relationship that we share with each other that no one else shares in. I know her, she knows me. I know her unlike anybody else in this world knows her. She knows me unlike anybody else in this world knows me. She doesn't share that relationship with any other man. I don't share this relationship with any other woman. That's a close, intimate, personal relationship. Well, whenever we say a close, personal, intimate relationship with God, and immediately we think of a romanticized idea of a relationship where it's just me and God, and we tune everybody else out, where, where God and I, we kind of have our own way of doing things. Yeah, and, I, you know, and, and instead of referring to Him as God, we start referring to Him as my God. We start taking possession of Him to the exclusion of everyone else. And whenever we take possession of Him that way, then what ultimately happens is we begin to shape and form Him into the way that we want Him to be. Well, my God would never do that. Well, my God is this and my God is that. Here's the deal. He's not my God. I don't have a personal relationship with God. Because God has a relationship with you, doesn't He? So I'm sharing God with a lot of other people. And my relationship with God is not on my terms. My relationship with God is on the same terms that He shares a relationship with you. Again, we have this idea that, well, you know, well, you know, God knows me and God understands. As if he's going to make special allowances and special exclusions and, and, and special uh, whatever for me. No. He's going to relate to me the same way he relates to you. So if he says something is sin for you, then it's sin for me. If he says something is good for you, then it's good for me. We have no private relationship. We have no special deals, as a person told me one time. Well, see, God and I, you know, we've got a deal. Well, if you've got a deal, it better be the same deal that God has with everybody else. Because if it's not the same deal that God has with everybody else, it's a bad deal and you're deceived. And so this idea of a special relationship causes us to really become selfish with God. To become selfish with God. And it leads to many damaging effects in our own lives and in the lives of other people. <clears throat> the confirmation of such a relationship is not found in knowledge and truth. Am I obeying and living holy? But the close personal intimate relationship paradigm with God is really an experience based on experience and feelings. Think about your relationship with your spouse. What's a big part of that? It's feelings, isn't it? You know, when the feelings are good in there, then, you know, we feel strong in the relationship. And where knowledge, you know, that sounds so mechanical. You know, we don't get with our spouse and say, okay, here's all the things that I want you to know. Here's all the things that I want you to do. You do that and we're going to be good. 
No, our, our, our relationship is emotional. And in fact, a lot of times the emotion gets in front of all of those things. But whenever you look at the way God relates to us, it's not something that is based on experience and feelings, but it's something that's based upon knowledge and truth, out of which any good feelings would come, or out of which feelings of conviction can come. Let's notice what the apostle, or rather John, whenever you look at the word uh, relationship in the Bible, when you look at the different translations that are out there, and there's two, not to get into the science behind, because behind Bible translations, but there's two main areas of the way a Bible is translated. There's, there's what I call the loose end. The loose end is more of a thought for thought. Okay, the translators read it and they say, okay, how can we best put this in words that people can understand? And so that's a thought for thought. A lot of times it's a paraphrase. And so whenever you're putting something in modern language, relationship is a very modern term. And so you're going to hear that word a lot in modern translations. But the thing that I notice is that whenever you look at the more strict translations that say, okay, here's the Greek word. What's the best word to show the meaning of that Greek word? Very rarely, if at any time, do you see the word relationship used. You see, we use it a lot. But whenever you look at the more strict translations of the Bible, it's something that you very rarely see if you even see it all. Now, you know, it might come to surprise us to think that there are, believe it or not, there are some Bibles out there that don't have the word, that don't have the word relationship in them anywhere. In the King James Version, we see words that we think of relationship whenever we see them, but they're not translated that way for a particular reason because the word relationship doesn't fully grasp the meaning. I like the word that John uses here. 1 John 1, 3. That which we've seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. John doesn't say truly our relationship is with the Father. If we say that we have a relationship with Him, the word that's used here is fellowship. Whenever you look at the word fellowship, it comes from this Greek word, which means the act of partaking or sharing with God. A partnership, a participation. It consists in the fact that Christians are partakers in common of the same mind as God in Christ and of the, same, of the blessings that arise therefrom. And so what John is saying here is, is that whenever you look at us, all of us here, we're fellowshipping. Whenever you think of a fellowship, do you think of one person? You think of many people because you're participating together. You're sharing in something. And so John represents their relationship with God here as a fellowship. We're participating with each other. And so that's why he calls it their fellowship with the Father because we're all sharing from the Father. There's no special deals for me. God doesn't take me off over here and isolate me and have a special relationship with me. He has a relationship, He has a fellowship with me that He has with you, that He has with every other believer. And there's nothing special about me in the sense that He fellowships with me differently than He does you. 
But whenever we have that idea of a close, personal, intimate relationship with God, it tends to make us think that, yeah, I am off over here by myself with God. That I don't need that church. I don't need all those people. I'm just going to stay at home, and I'm going to watch my videos, and I'm going to read my devotional books, and I'm going to do my personal private time, and that's my relationship with God. Those things are not wrong. Don't get the wrong impression, okay? Don't walk out of here thinking, well, he doesn't think we should have private time. No, you should have private time. But what I'm saying is our private time and our private practices must be seen in the context of the entire fellowship that God has with believers. And we'll show that here in just a moment. Again, participating. Okay, 1 John 3, 2. Now by this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, he who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. This is another word that the Bible used to denote our relationship with God. The Apostle Paul uses this in Philippians when he talks about knowing God. And what I want us to, understand, what I want us to notice is the word that's used there, to know. Well, what does it mean to know? It comes from this Greek word, and it means perceived or seen, hence to have knowledge of to know, to know, and I know this is kind of redundant, but to become acquainted with, to know the nature of God, especially the holy will and affection by which He aims to sanctify and redeem men through Christ. Notice the word that the Holy Spirit inspires to denote this relationship with God. It is to know Him. Why did He use that word? There's more to a relationship with God than just knowing. There are feelings. There are emotions. There are feelings of worship and praise. And all of those, those inward affective uh, influences that knowing God has. But at the root of it, at the foundation of it, it is based upon our knowledge of Him. Because you can have all the feel-goods you want, but if it's based upon a wrong knowledge of God, it does no good. You see, the knowledge at the foundation is to feed the feeling. But what we've done is we've inverted that and we're saying that the feeling is to feed our assurance that we have a relationship with God. That's why you see in so many contemporary worship settings, it's a, it's a reach for a feeling. It's a reach for a feeling. And so you have to have all of the ancillary things going on. You have to have the smoke machine. <laughs> you have to have the lighting just right to create that mood to evince that feeling. And we have to understand that our fellowship with God is not based upon that. And though those experiences may be wonderful and they may they may you know, cause us to, to feel such a closeness. to You know when we're closest to God? You know when we're really, really closest to God? When we do what He says. When we do what He says. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. That's how we know that we know Him. Now again, that doesn't sound very romantic. That doesn't sound very romantic. That sounds so mechanical. But that's the way the Bible says. And so we don't want to mistake a feeling of a close, personal, intimate relationship with God for doing His commandments. 
And so any type of practice, any type of idea of a relationship with God that diminishes the importance of doing God's commandments is something that is to be rejected. You see, when we're converted, there's three works that took place. First, we were forgiven of our sins, Acts 2.38. Next, we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We were given the gift, the earnest of the Spirit, Acts 2.38, Ephesians 1.13-14. But there was a third work that was, that was done. You see, when God converted, create, or whenever He saved you and He saved me, He didn't take us by the hand and lead us off over here by ourselves where we could have our own special, personal, intimate relationship with God. You know what the next thing was that God did to you and to me? He stuck us in with a bunch of people. He stuck us in with a bunch of people. We're added to the body, the church. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church. Okay, here's a convert. Here, get with this group of people. Here's a convert. Here, get with this group of people. Here's a convert. Here. So I'm going to have all this group of people. And it's not me off over in the corner with God. It's me and a bunch of other people sharing in God, in a fellowship. And we can't lose that context or that picture of our connection with God. Because what it does is that it divides the body, it spreads the body thin where the body doesn't work as intricate parts functioning as a whole to bring glory to God, but we're just a bunch of individuals off over here doing our own thing, praising God and worshiping God, but not functioning in the body the way God intended. And that's why when we use the word relationship, I fear that there's danger in thinking, well, it's just God and me. Okay, and it's great to go to church, and it's great to be with everybody else, but in the end, it's just God and me. And we fail to see our place in the bigger picture that the apostle paints. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. For as the body is one and has many members, all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. That's kind of confusing when you read through it. Member body, member body. What's the point? Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand you're not just a bunch of individuals that are going out to parade certain spiritual gifts for your own aggrandizement but rather you are placed within a group of people. So see your spiritual gifts in that context, not as something that benefits you individually, but something that is to benefit the entire body. You see, whenever I have my private time, whenever I read my devotional books and have my private prayer time, yeah, that is me and God. But also involved with that should be in my mind an understanding of, Lord, I want you to make me strong so I can be strong for the body. And understand that my connection with God, my relationship, my fellowship, whatever you want to call it, is only as good as it benefits the body that God has put me in. For by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased it. Member body, member body, member body. Why does Paul keep doing this? Because he wanted the Corinthians to understand they were falling into the danger of being individualized. 
that the gifts that they were practicing, they were saying, look at me, how spiritual I am, because I can speak in tongues. And they were using those gifts by themselves. And I'm going to say that they probably felt really, really close to God. Because, I mean, they were speaking in tongues. They, and you just, just the closeness to God. And Paul's saying, huh? No, you don't have that gift to make you feel good, to serve you. You have that gift to serve the body because that's where God has put you. He set the members. And the word set there means to take it. It's like if you were going to decorate your house and you had a piece, you know, you had a vase or something with flowers in it. You take it and you look around and you see where it would best add to the effect of the room. That's what that word set means. doesn't mean they just took it and set it up on a counter. Okay, it's there. I know it's there. No. He took it and he sets us in the place that he thinks we're going to be most effective in the body. And as believers, we need to explore and try to find out where is my place that God has set me that I can most effectively serve the body. Ephesians 4, 16, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by which every joint supplies according to the effectual working of the measure of every part or which every part shares, I'm getting my translations mixed up, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The effective working by which every part does its share. You have a part. You have a share. And your part and your share, and my part and my share, is not to grab God and take God off over here in a corner and keep Him to myself. It is for me to become a part of God's body, cultivate that connection that I have with God, that fellowship with God, so that my participation with God in His nature is going to affect everybody else's participation in that effectiveness. Ephesians 2, 1 to 19, or verse number 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole body being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Here again, the Apostle Paul, what's he saying? You're part of something bigger. You're part of something bigger. Is there an individual aspect of our fellowship with God? Absolutely. There is. But that individual aspect must be looked at and must be understood in the context of the greater picture that God is building and putting together. 1 Peter 2.5, You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're, you're part of a building. You're a stone in a building. What's he saying? You're one of many. You're one of many. So you can't be a stone like this. Here's the stones being put together. Well, I'm just going to stay off over here. Because me and God, we've got this close personal interrelationship. God has put you there. God has put me there. Look at the strength that I'm giving to those stones around me. And by giving strength to those stones around me, look at the strength that's being given 
to the entire building. Take that stone out. What have you done? You're taking away strength from here, 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 here. And if you take away strength from here, 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 and here, you're taking strength away from everything. And so we have to function as a member of a whole. And again, the close, personal, intimate relationship with God, as it is taught in a lot of different religious circles today, doesn't emphasize this. Doesn't emphasize this. It's just you and God. Yeah, you come to church for a, for, for a good feeling or something like that, but in the end, it's just you and God. So when a personal relationship concept is stressed, we can lose sight of the bigger picture and become fragmented into parts and fail to collectively function in the body as God has designed us to do. Our individual fellowship with God is only as effective as the contribution it makes to the fellowship and function of the body. So if we really want to assess our relationship, if we really want to assess our fellowship with God, it's not about how good I can feel in those times of closeness and intimacy with God. It is what contribution is my fellowship with God making with everybody else. You have to see yourself and I have to see myself as part of a collective body. And you know, in, in coming out of COVID, this is, this is a danger, you know. People stayed home, did the live stream. Live streams are great. We do live stream back home. But some people have told you, hey, this works pretty good. I don't have to get up and rush around to go to church. I can just stay home and I can watch it on TV. But what's the danger in that? But what about everybody else? What about those people there that need you? If Ben decided not to come, home, come this morning, he decided to stay home and watch this on live stream. One of the first things you'd think when you walk through the door, well, where's Ben? <laughs> where's Ben? And then if I were to tell you, well, he decided that he didn't want to come be around y'all this morning. He just wanted to stay home by himself and watch it on live stream. What would that do for you? Wouldn't do a whole lot for you, would it? And so we have to understand our place in the body, our place in that which is collective. And we've already read that verse. So, again, do not get the idea that personal growth, development, and closeness with God is not important and should not be cultivated. It is and it must. But it cannot be seen as the end. You know, people knock religion, and, and, and rightly so, hypocritical religion. What's the problem with hypocritical religion? The problem with hypocritical religion is that religion is the end. In other words, once we've done religion, we're done. Good. Doesn't matter if I walk out and there's not an effect. We've done religion, so we're good. Well, it's the same way with relationship. We can make our personal relationship an end to where we feel good after doing our morning devotionals and we feel good after doing our personal prayers and, you know, and listening to our music by ourselves and we know we, we feel really, really good. And because we have that really, really good feeling, we feel like, okay, that's it. That's great. I've got a great relationship. No. You're making your, your relationship the end. What, what end does God want to achieve? He wants to achieve ministry to the body. 
making everybody else better. So I don't care how good I feel about myself and my relationship with God. If y'all don't get anything out of it, then it's vain. See, just like you can have vain religion, you can have a vain relationship. And one of the things that I notice about this mentality is that a lot of times these people, and I say these people, I include myself because I went through this at a time in life, where, you know, I'm just tired of everything. I'm tired of messing with all the religious drama and all of the church troubles. I'm just going to get God and I'm just going to go over here and it's just going to be me and Him by myself. And you know what happens? Then you begin to stand over here and you begin to start criticizing everybody else. You begin to become a religious critic. And religious critics do no good to the body. Religious critics do no good to the body. What does good to the body are people who will involve themselves with other people to jointly participate in sharing God with each other, to grow together, to minister together, to be strengthened together. And so again, these things are important, but don't lose sight of how that personal growth, develop, and closeness with God is to translate into growth, development, and closeness with God in the body. Our personal growth is not the end. It's the means to the end of the church being a glory to God. If we make personal growth an end to itself, it's no better than making religion an end to itself. got ahead of myself. So that's why religion is so important. Religion is important because it serves the body. Our common religious observances serve to, number one, reinforce the fellowship we have and maintain our identity as a body. Now, I don't know about you, but again, whenever we went through COVID and we, everybody was just scattered, try as you may on social media, you can't stay as close to people as you can when you meet weekly together and share personally, physically, in a time of religion. There's no substitute for it. And that's one of the reasons for, religious, for religion is that it reinforces the fellowship that we have with each other. And that's why Satan wants you to reject religion because then he knows he can divide us, he can spread us, he can neutralize us, because we're no longer together. Number two, it brings our individual strengths together to build one another up and strengthen and grow the body to God's glory. We're all here together. And by coming here together and participating together religiously, it strengthens all of us. And from the strength that we gain here, then we go out into the world individually to live to the glory of God. But the thing is, when you share in religious observances together, it doesn't stop at the sharing of religious observance. It continues on in the sharing of burdens. It continues on in the sharing of trials. It continues on in the sharing of good times. It continues on in a sharing that enriches our lives to the glory of God. But I'm not going to get that if I just stay home and read my books and watch my videos and listen to my music by myself. See the big picture. So Christianity, rather than saying, is it a religion or relationship, I want to leave you with this thought. Christianity is religion and fellowship. Religion and fellowship. And don't let Satan 
convince you into making a false choice. Embrace what the Scriptures teach. And this is what the Scriptures teach. That Christianity is a religion and it is a fellowship. And whenever it is done right according to the Word of God, it produces an effect among a group of people sharing together in God's nature, abounding to God's glory. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want? I appreciate your attention this morning. And I hope that what we've studied will be helpful to you. And again, I want to leave with this thought. I am not diminishing the private and the individual aspects of our service to God. They are necessary. What I am saying is don't allow that to become the end. But see your fellowship with God in the context of a bigger picture. And make sure that the effectiveness of your fellowship with God is gauged not by how good you feel and how close you feel or how good I feel or how close I feel, but gauge its effectiveness by the product, by, by the effect that it has on other people's fellowship with God. I want other people to draw closer to God because of my fellowship with God. I draw closer to God because of the fellowship of other people that, have close, that are close. When, I, when I'm around people that are seeking God together, you know what that makes me want to do? That makes me want to seek God just that much more. When I'm sitting in the company of somebody that's teaching the Word and they're getting in-depth in the Scriptures, you know what that makes me want to do? That makes me want to go home and just study more. And just study more. And so let's zealously affect one another through our religion and through our fellowship. We've selected a song. If there's someone here that has a spiritual matter to bring the attention of the congregation, if we could help you in any way, we'd ask you to come as we stand and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.